Welcome everyone to a, another episode of our Course Health uh, Cross Podiatry Systems collaboration. I'm uh, incredibly honoured to be joined by uh, Dr. Mark Kajula, um, a physical therapist from the US and another one of uh, Course Health's uh, communication and education partners. He's come on uh, today to have a chat about application. So part of our sort of guide of how we actually apply some of these ideas to Course Health, we've got people from the trenches coming on to discuss exactly how they use this information with their patients, exactly how um, they, they implement and uh, with good effect. And uh, I think there's a, there's a lot to, to learn from um, a number of different uh, physicians, from physiotherapists, from podiatrists, all people that uh, exemplify this and, and have found of, uh, it's had a, a really positive impact, not just for their patients, but, but for themselves and, and how they've applied practice. So uh, yeah, welcome, uh, welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me, Alex. Uh, great to talk to you. Great to finally connect, and uh, always good to talk to some folks uh, about Cause Health. It's a big, um, been an honor to be part of the project a little bit, as far as from the you know kind of application clinician and the front lines approach. And uh, looking forward to our chat. Yeah, me too. Well, uh, before we dive dive in, uh, it's probably good uh, for for the few people who don't know you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who who are you? What, what what's your background? And and most importantly as well, how did you come across Course Health? Yeah, uh, as you said, my name is Mark Karsh. I'm a clinical assistant professor at Midwestern University here in Glendale, Arizona, kind of in Phoenix. And uh, I've been practicing physical therapy for 18 years. Um, been in this position for about three years, and um, really the journey of being kind of constantly trying to improve what I was doing, and you know was struggling with real people because of what I first came out of school, you know, textbooks, which are laced with things, very helpful things formed through randomized controlled trials and, and a lot of evidence-based formations of kind of creating this black and white world that I thought I was going to step into in clinic. And then when I stepped into clinic, it was nothing like that. It's definitely the textbook stuff helped, mm. but I then saw patients that didn't fit any of that stuff and had very unique situations and stories. And I had no idea how to even interact and engage in that story. I was just like so focused on normative. I need to question and develop a hypothesis and come to a treatment and you're crying and you're mad or you're whatever. I don't know. And I don't feel comfortable going there with you. So I mistakenly thought the path and I'm not, I shouldn't say mistakenly, but my path to think to fix that was like, I just got to become a better manual therapist. So I spent probably 10 to 15 years, well, 10 years probably of my career, just really thinking that the key to really fixing some of these complex situations was getting better with my hands and like being able to like sense things with my hands and be able to do manipulative things. You know, I was, a lot of my focus is on spine stuff, but I do work a lot with lower quarter um, work alongside some podiatry uh, clinicians, some great clinicians here at Midwestern university. Um, And then kind of kept going through training and got to the point of fellowship training, which is kind of our highest level of training here in the U S for manual therapy. And, it was great helped with a lot of clinical reasoning and critical thinking and different things. But I remember seeing a lot of patients with some of my mentors where you have to do mentor hours underneath a, somebody who's also achieved fellowship status and seeing them struggle with a lot of those same emotional things and, and maybe non traditional ways that we used to look at patients. It was again, very much, you know, do they fit the textbook Mm -hmm. bulleted point ways of looking at humans and um, they were still struggling with the same people. So it was really, kind of disheartening and frustrating. I remember 
when I read Lewis Gifford's experience with Jeff Maitland and really feeling like, although Jeff Maitland's an amazing contributor to what, you know, in, in the physio world and even beyond, um, but saw a lot of patients in his practice that were failing with that approach because there, there was a lot more to the complexity of them than just, you know, maybe uh, some of the more biomedical ways of looking at them or biomechanical ways. So anyway, I was introduced to a pain science course in that, and that really opened my eyes of like, okay, there's a lot more to like this whole biopsychosocial model, and I, we need to look beyond that. And then that naturally had me really looking for, well, who's out there doing things? So I got, um, you know, in contact with Matt Lowe and Roger Carey and just kind of bothered them enough over social media and other, <laughs> I, I mean, this is the beauty of the digital age we live in, you can kind of just um, stalk people on social media for your free con ed and, and, you know, selfish learning habits, but, um, got to know them and they, I got really pointed into a lot of philosophy. Matt Lowe's probably been the biggest influence on me in that, as far as really looking beyond just, you know, bio, the biologic components of a human, um, and really digging into, okay, it makes sense. Like, you know, philosophy of science, we've really formed a lot of our scientific principles and things, off of a uh, consideration of what we consider truth and knowledge in a situation and that empirical approach, which again, isn't bad. It, it helps in certain things, but it definitely doesn't unravel the complexity of what we see day to day in the clinic. So um, I was fortunate enough to, to have a little bit of a, uh, we had a kind of a masterclass where we had like Ronnie Lil Anjum and, and uh, Roger Carey, Matt Lowe. We had Tina Price, who's an amazing patient advocate, Gilletta Belton, also another amazing patient advocate. Um, and others who were involved, uh, David Nichols, Jerry Durham, Fiona Moffat. We had a great group and they were able to come on. That's probably one of the bigger learning experiences because I had read a lot of Coswell stuff, but like really having them come in and, and uh, talk about their unique perspectives on it really has really massively opened up my understanding of how we got to really embrace complexity in our practices and not try to control for it and understand that, hey, we might control for it in certain scenarios when we're trying to isolate treatment effects, but you're never going to perfectly isolate things when we're dealing with complex humans and complex systems. So um, I guess that's a long drawn out way of kind of where I've been and where I'm at. So still struggling with that complexity. And I wouldn't argue to say that I've, I don't think you're ever going to perfectly figure it out because each human being is so unique and has a unique story they bring to the equation. To me, it makes it fun and enjoyable in clinic to where I got a unique person that I'm going to try to figure out what are the things I need to try to pull out of this person to hopefully partner up with them, create that shared narrative that moves them towards things that are meaningful to them. And it's not as much about me and my amazing Jedi hands anymore. It's about that human in front of me and how do I best integrate myself into their world and, and best move them forward. So it's kind of flipped my practice a little bit on its head, but in a good way. It's one of the reasons why I thought it was you know, incredibly useful as part of this series to, to bring people on board um, who are using this in clinic is, is this is the message that, that I often hear is that a lot of people end up coming to, to course health, being aware of course health, or, or there are, you know, similar projects or end up thinking along the same line. So I talked to a lot of re, uh, researchers that have ended up in qualitative research, uh, for example, because it exemplifies um, these factors and it's, and it's all borne out by this root of, I, I tried my best. We went down the textbook route. We've gone down the black and white world. I often think it's it's about taking a three-dimensional world and flattening it and then going, why, why is everything not working? So it, it's it's good to hear someone, uh, you know, especially as experienced and, and as senior as you in the profession, be able to say, you know, I, I there is no right answer. There's no real, but there's uh, no real wrong answer, you know, chasing that sort of 
black and white understanding is has not helped and you know there is no such thing as the master it's just how do we create an a um a process and a framework that allows us to be explore a lot of these ideas um but not exactly determine a right and a wrong and i think that's a when we start talking about cause health talking about right or wrong what is the right or wrong answer that's probably the the first thing i come across is well that that that's a that's a big sort of a part of the approach that we're that we're going to have to change yeah yeah, this, the, the black and white world, it's, 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 it's a way that we can kind of categorize knowledge and test people on it so they can achieve licensure and be stamped that they're safe to go out and practice their desired field. But it, it, it and it's, again, it's not completely worthless. It's just, man, it, it, it's a very unidimensional way of looking at, like you said, a three-dimensional, um, if not more dimensions than that, um, that we face in the clinic. So, uh, yeah, I think understanding that there's more data in the room than just what the RCTs tell us is there, that there's patients with, you know, unique human experiences. And one of the things that, you know, I've really appreciated getting to know Roger Carey and, and things is has really pushed it. Like we need to bring the humanities back to healthcare. And that's one of our pushes. Um, I, I didn't mention, but I, I run a continuing education company with my partner, Jared Hall, we uh, modern pain care, where that's kind of our big push is to truly bring the humanities back into healthcare and, and help clinicians start to incorporate the stuff that we're talking about today. Um, because one, it's hugely rewarding and it uh, helps you really connect with people that um, healthcare can tend to miss the boat on if, um, because they're not really, they're still maybe taking that black and white approach. Mm. Well, I guess that, that would be something I'd, I'd ask you sort of first up as part of this chat is where's that line or, and it might be a very fuzzy line, but where's that sort of line of, um, use where black and white information is, is quite useful and helpful and where is that sort of where would you start you know starting to involve more thinking or I guess one of the answers will be probably straight from the start there is no line but if we were going to to help people make that transition where are we putting that black and white information where are we trying to trying to push them more into other other sort of collecting other bits of information sure yeah you know clinically there's still things we do as clinicians that are very kind of I guess, you know, more empirically based, like, you know, red flag screening to make sure, hey, does this patient belong in under my care? Are there red flag things that I need to send them to um, their primary care physician for or, or things that are, you know, beyond the scope of my practice, you know, screening for cancer or, or different kind of red flag type conditions that can, you know, emerge as musculoskeletal pain. Some of that um, is very more, I guess, even then that's the, there's not a perfect black and white within those. And, you know, Chad Cooks and others have kind of wrote about that recently, but um, and then still checking for more black and white diagnoses. I mean, I'm sure in, um, you know, podiatry, there's still the kind of your, um, I guess, non-complex lateral ankle sprain that's, you know, pretty, you know, maybe locally nociceptive driven where it's, you know, but there's still a human attached to it. So even then you can't really perfectly isolate it to some, you know, consistent variables that are going to always emerge the same way within the unique person in front of you. So, um, but you, I think you can still, you still have to have those skill sets to be able to assess a person's, you know, biology and, and see what kind of mechanically patterned things might be present, but never losing sight that those mechanical pattern things and anything that mechanically happens in the body travels up to through a nervous system that enters a human's experience and their unique experience and how they're going to perceive and think and behave and react to that can be completely different. You can get very similar, I guess, tissue issues and they happen with two different humans with two different, completely different life experiences and perceptions of what's going on. 
and you get a very different clinical picture as far as how it looks and behaves clinically. So um, to me, it helps make sense of like, how can somebody have similar tissue issues yet have such different presentations? And I think understanding that, man, there's a lot more data in the room that you need to be considering than traditional empirically based driven data. Again, not that that's bad. You still need to check for it and determine if it's present and if there's some things. And, you know, I think talking with uh, Ronnie and others and reading the Cause Health book, which hopefully most of the folks that are listening to this have, if you haven't, you should, um, that, you know, th these RCTs can help us give us, you know, understandings of what are the dispositions of some of our interventions and our treatments. So what are they, dis you know, what things can they dispose to like maybe possible parts of it, an equation that could move somebody in a particular direction they're not probably as, you know, they're never isolated the effect to just the intervention itself. The intervention enters a context with a unique person in a unique environment that you have to take into account. But um, I, I do think, you know, to kind of circle back a bit that you still need to be able to assess those unique, um, you know, the black and white, I guess, more traditional um, clinical patterns and pathways and, um, you know, kind of biomedical, biomechanical components of it. Just don't put it on an island like it lives there by itself. There, it, like I said, it, it exists in a very complex um, equation oftentimes. And rarely, even with the most, I guess, textbook presentation, there's, like I said earlier, there's a human attached to it that might not make it emerge and present itself as textbook as you would think. I think... I, whenever I hear someone sort of talk, talk about this and, and talking about, you know, it's, it's not just black and white, there's other bits of information to consider. I sort of think about how we, you know, talk about the biopsychosocial model. It's, it's really an, ex an expansion. It's not a, um, it's not telling us that these, these things are no longer important. It's sort of like modifying and, uh, or collecting more information to then modify how we look at that black and white information. That's what I'm taking out of what, what you're saying is there's obviously some very, very important um, biomedical considerations. If someone has a cancer, if someone has a, well, we could even think about a fracture. Um, we think about some, some other sort of serious pathologies, um, you know, or, or um, systemic pathologies, rheumatoid arthritis, um, those sort of things where there is a, a, a definitely a medical component attached. Uh, but the expansion is is sort of not just, well, how do they then feel about this or how do they then feel about a condition? It's more of what I think you're highlighting is that there's information in expanding it out that will change how we actually then manage that. So there is a, there's a huge amount of black and white information there that, that could be incredibly useful if we think about, you know, a simple uh, ankle sprain. Um, I, I always like that as an example because I think it the modern way that we, we – um, rehabilitated ankle you know biomedically um or what is sort of laid out in the literature is actually quite a good example of well it's not just the injury it's then getting them confident to reload it and getting them mobilizing early um yeah. but yeah there's there's a lot of other bits of information to take into account which modifies your um what you'll do yeah. uh to think thinking about that i guess what could you give us a, another example um, of, a, of a specific sort of case where you've seen something and there's the, the clear sort of biomedical bio black and white kind of management, but it's all been sort of completely changed when you've collected um, more personal information and sort of gotten a better a picture of the person and what you think they'd respond to? 
Yeah, you know, I regularly will treat um, some younger, you know, folks that are maybe even like, uh, you know, their early teens um, and have parents with them. So there's you know, a unique context that that brings in the room when parents are accompanying, um, you know, kids as far as you're trying to make sure uh, they're involved in obviously the discussions. And and you, you kind of see how that interaction, uh, you know, kind of runs itself in front of you. And you can see how much is mom involved or dad. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to, both parents can be equally helping or sometimes can be challenging to, to the outcome. You know, sometimes, you know, parents can be very protective and for good reasons. I think it's all motivated out of great stuff. You want the best for your kiddo and you don't want, you know, you see your kiddos in pain and struggling. I, I know as a relatively new dad of a now four-year-old, um, you know, I can now see how parents' perspectives, I used to get kind of like, I don't get how parents can be so, you know, helicopter-ish, I guess, if you were to put it that way. But it, now it makes complete sense, but it, then I'm also the step back is like, Hey, kids need to sometimes go through some struggles and learn to kind of engage and, and, and overcome some of these things. So, but a, an example, I've had a patient recently who I, I, I believe it was actually kind of a lateral ankle sprain and, you know, uh, it just happened to be a mom. Um, but I've had this both with moms and dads where it was, you know, very putting out a, a kind of a, a very protective, fearful, oh my gosh, don't, we don't want it to hurt type thing. And, kind of was a barrier to loading. And, you know, you kiddos, that's where we learn a lot of our behaviors and how to react to some things when we're faced with it is how mom and dad kind of model it for us. So a lot of my, you know, bringing that into the room, you would think that, hey, it's a basic ankle sprain should be able, like you said, let's get them confident, let's get them reloading it, let's get them back in valued activities as quickly as possible. But there was obviously, they weren't ready for that, you know, and if I didn't bring that dad in, like, hey, mom, what are your thoughts on on us starting to nudge this? So there's a lot of like, hey, what are your thoughts? Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? I, I'd like to does this sound like this is a reasonable thought? Like, and basically laying it out like, hey, you know, he's he, this he's had an ankle sprain. Beautiful thing is it looks like it's healing well. He's starting to be able to walk on it. There, understand me, it sounds like there's some concern to reload it. I, I can imagine we don't want to feel like we're going to re-injure it or cause any permanent things. Here's what I think. I think, you know, we'd I'd like to see if we can maybe start getting him back to, you know, doing some gradual graded things that we're confident are safe. Um, and start to get him gr gradually reloading this. Would you be okay if we start doing that? And it was, I was asking both too. And what are your thoughts on it um, as well? And make sure that everybody's on the same page. Because I think if you just look at that from a black and white, let's get you on it and load it. But if I would have just rushed into that, I got a mom who's like, what the heck? This dude is pushing way beyond what I'm comfortable for him to do. We're not coming back for visit two. This guy's aggressive. He's, he's a, um, you know, physical torture, PT. You know, sometimes we get <laughs> unfortunately termed that with PT, but, um, um, and then the kiddo might not be ready for it too. But again, you bring their perspectives into the room. You, you, you know, honor that they have an experience and a perspective and beliefs and thoughts and behaviors around this. And you try to, you know, bring that knowledge and that data into the room. I think, you know, that's the one criticism with evidence-based cares. We try to strip that out of the, to an extent. I know there's studies where we bring in catastrophization scores and kinesiophobia scores. So we're, we're trying to bring those in, but it's hard to perfectly control for that for so much unique stuff that comes in a room. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, having, bringing that into where, you know, one, you know, listen to their situation, listen to their perspectives, validate those perspectives, don't, you know, put them to the side, um, and then offer your, your, your advice and opinion after you kind of ask permission. Um, that brings me an inroad where that ankle sprain that should, you know, in, in a perfectly just black and white world should kind of navigate as well probably best gives me a chance to get there and best, you know, that therapeutic alliances, you know, data that comes out over and over in the literature of really instilling that can help, you know, a patient that understands that, Hey, 
he wants me loaded. I'm not sure I was comfortable coming into this, but he's really explained it well. He's really validated that I'm not really 100% confident in it. And he's not going to push me more than I'm comfortable with, but he might say he's going to nudge me a little bit out of my comfort zone. Um, I think I've, I have much more success with those type of situations than my traditional, like, I don't, mom, I don't really get that. You know, it seems like you're the helicopter parent and all this stuff. I'm just going to go default to my algorithm of what I do with patients based on clinical practice guidelines, which again, aren't bad. It's just, it doesn't take into account that there's a unique situation in your context that you need to treat just as much as you need to treat the ankle. Um, and it may not be treated through mechanical means. It may just be a good listening ear and a good educating mouth that validates their experience and brings them into the uh, interaction. Yeah. And I think that's, it really sort of highlights um, that, that we've got this, you know, guide guideline of this is what we, what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And it's quite, quite well sort of structured, but yeah, it very much is looking at what does good care look like if we zoom in on the ankle, if we zoom in on, you know, a, and we average it out as well. So if we take a whole bunch of people, you know, some people get better faster, some people get better slower. What happens if just looking at the ankle, we see the people that do well and we just look at the ankle and see the people that don't do well. Uh, but yeah, the, the study's also not saying why do people, why are some people faster? Why are some people slower? Why are, you know, why do some, a lot of people do this and do quite well? What are the happens to the, the anomalies, the people that often mm-hmm. aren't included in the study? Yeah. So it sort of, it sort of sounds, sounds like to me the way that, you know, sort of approaching it is you've got this map that is the, the, the evidence that, that there might be, or, or a, a sort of a pre-worn path. Um, on a map, but uh, that you're trying to, you know, realistically help the patient go down. But at the end of the day, if they start taking left and right turns, you've still got this map of what what the evidence tells you um, that you can use to help guide that person either back to the path or if they're just going straight out into the weeds, that that yeah. you can still have a, have a have a have a somewhat of a map to go. Well, I'm not 100 percent sure where this is going to go, but I've got enough skills and experience and enough knowledge of the evidence. To, to actually lead us in a direction that will get us to the end, the end result. Is, is, is that a sort of a good way of, of framing it? Yeah, no, I think very good way. I think, you know, being willing to let patients kind of lead a little bit. That's where I think, you know, historically, you know, it's very much clinician paternalistic healthcare where it's like, I am the expert, you are the novice, I will pull you along. Like, I'm just going to be, you're, I'm going to be the leader and you're going to follow me. Um, where, yeah, you know, hey, I want to make sure the destination is the goals are set up and the goals move them towards where, you know, and but then it's like the, the journey doesn't have to be that worn path. It may not be. Maybe it's a left turn and two rights and then you jog around and two lefts and you end up back at the same end point. But it doesn't have to be this perfectly, you know, linear proposed pathway that we hope that everybody's going to take. I'm sure there are some patients that I mean, we probably all treated patients where it went very much like a textbook and like how it was brought out. I mean, those are fun. I don't think they happen as frequently as um, maybe we're thought they were going to happen uh, when we come out of school and, and start practicing. But um, yeah, I think you being willing to take a journey that doesn't always have to be like sometimes that clinical practice guideline might lay out a path of intervention, but your patient may not be there. They're, they might not have, they might have negative experiences. There might be a ver- variety of different things that unless you bring their data in the room, you're going to be put in, you know, clinician-based care versus person-centered care. Person-centered care is understanding all those unique things that, hey, even though it might take me a little bit of a roundabout way to get there, I may not have to go right, ram them down the clinical practice guideline 
approach. Again, like you said, it doesn't mean we can just go willy-nilly do whatever the heck we want. We're still going to try to move them in a more evidence-based bounded way of going after it. But I'm willing to meet people in the middle a little bit if, if we can start partnering with them, creating that shared narrative that can move them back into a, a, a value journey. I think Gosh, when we get to, you know, that's a whole another kind of ball, you know, into the weeds of like, you know, what generates outcomes. I think it's, you know, I think some of the things that we've formed with the empirical approach, I think there's probably a lot more to at play of what generated a lot of those results and studies and different things maybe. Um, but it's it's more than maybe the mechanic mechanisms, mechanistic things of just the intervention itself. There's probably a lot more at play when people get better. But it's just, again, giving that stuff a stage to and try to understand as much of it as you can and and maximize your interactions with people by taking all that data into account instead of that flat and unidimensional world that you talk about initially, I think, um, can make you a lot more effective clinically. And, and uh, to me, it, you get a lot better relationships with patients. I mean, it's helped me just from a clinical practice. I think I've had a lot more you know, word of mouth type things because, you know, people just assess you as somebody who cares and I, which shouldn't, I mean, I think we all care. It's not like I'm, everybody else is like, if you're not in cause health, you don't care about people. It's just, it's an approach that really, to me, patients see like, man, this person's really trying to understand me and where I'm at and what my unique experience and thoughts around this thing. Um, they get me. Um, I think that's been something that as I've incorporated a lot of these approaches, I've had patients tell me, which I think is a sad reflection of maybe the state of healthcare that we, we don't let patients get heard and listened to. But um, mm. to me, if you can give that stage or give that patient opportunity to have their, their story heard, it can allow you to really tailor your care in a still very much evidence-informed way um, to help tailor it to their unique situation, not maybe that clinician bias of thoughts of where a patient should go and what you think. I mean, definitely you can have those thoughts, but it may not be where the patient's at that day, that moment. It's it's interesting we were talking about you know health outcomes because the, the the first thing that I thought um, was this great post by Derek Griffin um, over in Ireland and he sort of pointed out and said if we're doing such a great job and you know we're patting ourselves on the back going oh we got this great evidence based care why do we have this data that shows that everyone is getting worse in the world why do we have this data to say you know if if you know a lot of that's around a low back pain. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, a very, you know, unique sort of condition. I, I we probably shouldn't, shouldn't delve into too much. Um, but I think, you know, when we look at like, so for example, lateral ankle sprains, you know, we still have, you know, so many people go on to despite best management. Um, you know, the outcome data shows us that lots of people have second, third, fourth ankle sprains as a, you know, a significant proportion of people end up with lateral ankle stability, instability, um, yep issues so we sort of kind of go great we've got this you know evidence-based guideline we've got this really good understanding of, of what gets people better but when we look at the outcome data which which ultimately is the 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 big equalizer it's telling us well on the whole though we have all this great info but it's not getting the outcome and so you know sort of reading between the lines of of, of what you're sort of saying a little bit and trying to pull out sort of the thread it, it seems like what, you know, sort of course health is, is doing as a, as a philosophical project. I'm not, I wasn't always upfront saying it was <laughs> that we're going to try and teach people philosophy, but really it's sort of all, all that really means is it's, it's attacking some basic assumptions about how we practice this philosophy, highlight the assumptions. And then what happens if we change them? What happens if we think about it in a different way? 
Mm-hmm. I think the the assumption that I'm sort of taking out from from what you're saying is that there's very much an approach where we are trying to look at the world and, and people as as black and white as that sort of unidimensional factor, and we're taught that we are the people that just come in and uh, you know give them a, a very sort of standardized sort of program and that's kind of what research is, is trying to do in, in sort of a very human approach is trying to take something that's very complicated and messy. And realistically, we're taught that, that when we don't have to deal with any of that, we don't have to, to think about that as a component. And then, you know, really we're just fundamentally changing our, our focus from how do we implement what looks like the, the best care um, standardized wise to really that outcome-based focus of I've got, so if we go back to the child, you know, a lot of people I think would focus on that and go, oh, the mum's just a barrier um, to, to overcome. Um, but, you know, you sort of go back and think, but whenever in history has a patient ever been a barrier to overcome, where, whenever in, in history has anything gone exactly like the evidence, because that's what the outcome data is telling us. Nothing has ever gone perfectly. So I guess, would you agree with with that sort of idea that, we don't, we've probably been misinformed what our role is and our role has always been and always will be going, well, this is the average and these are sort of information bits that we can take into account of what good care can look like and what good care can be through RCTs and, and then, you know, as we go down sort of the evidence-based hierarchy, get things that are maybe a bit more contextual, but our, our role has always been, you know, looking at focusing on that outcome and going, how do we get people there and using the evidence as the way of saying what is probably the most useful and what is probably the least useful in situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that kind of, you know, when we talk about that dispositional approach, which uh, you know, dispos- dispositionalist philosophy that really founds uh, a lot of the causal stuff, it makes a lot more sense. You know, the empirical empiricism, a uh, positivist way of looking at it, where it only is a valid data in the equation, if we can measure it and it's, you know, tangible, you know, things we can, you know, perceive with our senses. Um, but, you know, a lot of life and human stuff isn't stuff you can perfectly measure. I and mean, there's a lot of complex things that exist in those equations. Yes, those those empirical studies give us some ideas of which interventions have the probably the most likely disposition to move somebody in a positive direction and bring that data into the equation. But we can't, if we only make the data and the truth of the equation what we can measure and we we don't even though we see a lot of these prognostic studies that show like um you know for you know jarvik had a study that looked at mri studies for the back and we'll go in the back again but what predicted somebody uh having an onset of, of back pain and they looked at it whether mri changes that looked at it like i think it was a three or seven year span between mris and the biggest thing that predicted if somebody was going to have uh, issues were depression versus they had some imaging things that were I don't even think it reached statistical significance, but again, it wasn't to say that some of that black and white sensory stuff that we can put a vision, we can measure it. Um, but depression, which again is, you know, I guess we can have some secondary ways of trying to measure it through, you know, different screening tools and different things, but you know, you don't have a depression meter that can perfectly, you have 86.2 degrees of, of depression today that I'm, that I'm detecting in your case. Um, but I think, yeah, I think the more we can, just understand that with a dispositionalist philosophy, it allows us to consider that there's a lot more things that can have dispositions towards an outcome beyond just that empirical, um, you know, very tightly internally controlled world that research studies live in, which that isn't where we live in the clinic. We live in very gray, 
you know, um, areas where there's just a lot of variables at play that I think a dispositionalist philosophy to me really brings that stuff in the room, at least gives you some concepts and some ways to, to have that data in, at play versus like if it doesn't fit the textbook, like this was me early on in my career, I have zero idea what to do. And when you start bringing emotions into the room, you're going to get me uncomfortable. I'm going to want to leave the room because I don't know how to deal with that stuff. Now I'm um, talking with folks like Gillette Bell and Tina Price and others who've gone through some pretty rotten situations with pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing how the key to it was somebody who actually just sat down and looked him in the eye and said, I, I really, this looks like it's been hard for you. Um, tell me what's been going on. What's, what's important to you in your world that you want to get back to and, and things that, um, you know, we, I would thought that, you know, you have to be some, they just didn't see the skilled enough clinician. Well, I think the skilled enough clinician is the one that can just step back, put the patient on the stage, um, listen and hear what they're going through, and then offer some ideas that align with their thoughts and beliefs and, and things to, to start moving them forward. And it doesn't need to be technically as fancy as maybe I thought it used to be. Well, it doesn't, in my opinion. I think there are still times where specific treatments are helpful. I'm sure we still do certain things to help lateral ankle sprains not hurt. We don't invert for a period of time because that, gosh dang it, when the tissues are still in the healing process, we don't need to do that early on. So there are times when those pieces of data need to enter the equation and come into our treatments. But um, you also, if somebody's catastrophizing and, 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 you know, freaking out, won't put weight on it while the other person with a similar ankle sprain is like, just got a slight limp in there. They're pretty much not going on crutches. Um, the other person's in a wheelchair. Um, what's going on differently with that? And a lot of it lies in their story that I think, again, that dispositionalist approach allows us to bring that data into the room and, and consider it as vital part of the data. And like you had mentioned earlier on about qualitative studies, I think those studies to me allow us to get a lot more windows in on some of that information that traditionally we've excluded from studies. Um, you know, this, the mixed methods research, I know is a bear to perform, but if we can combine a little qualitative and quantitative stuff, I think we got um, some modes to really better see how these two things interrelate. The, the qualitative part of that story, along with what objective that I hate the fact that we go subjective and objective <laughs> with a lot of that stuff, because I know Brownie's one, Brian Thompson's one that kicked me in the butt to like consider that differently. Now, I, after she talked about, I'm like, duh, that makes complete sense. Why we don't, why we should not call that subjective? Like, it's not as good of information as your objective information, even though it's subjective information, which again, probably not a good word. Um, probably at some in some instances bears a lot more control on the outcome than our objective data. Hmm. Is odd when we we're talking about dispositions and and you're talking about example before about depression um i guess i feel like that would be a good example to sort of delve a bit more mm-hmm. into because i think there, there can be a lot of misunderstandings about when we start talking about depression oh are you just now becoming a psychologist are we just talking to patients and things now are we just dealing with depression but i mean my understanding of of you know mental health conditions specifically when they interact with phys- you know with physical conditions is a bit more nuanced but i guess i'd i'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on why let's take for example you know a nice sort of simple case like patellofemoral pain syndrome how someone who is uh depressed would um or showing signs of depression how you would see that how you would see that as a as a barrier to them getting better and how you'd manage that that's probably not what people expect if you say you've got depression as your barrier and we're gonna we're gonna you know that's that's something that we need to deal with yeah yeah, I, I think, you know, I don't pretend to, to be a psychologist and I explicitly say this. It's not my scope to, you know, to counsel you on that, but I, here's what I can talk to you about it. And I like 
Matt Lowe's uh, vector diagram he had in one of his uh, articles um, that kind of talks about how you can start adding these dispositions of things that exist in that unique encounter with the person. And again, you're bringing in some of those data like depression of how it might push somebody to a threshold where pain's more likely to emerge out of that situation than some of the maybe things that buffer people away from it. Um, and you can do it. But even like there's a, the field of um, psychoneuroimmunology, which is um, kind of one of those things where I think we're going to have to see fields start to not just cat bucket themselves and isolate themselves in their own little world of immunology and psychology and, and uh, neurology. These systems are so interrelated and we're starting to see that human stories. And I think you're going to see more studies of like measures and proxies of sadness. I think Mark Hutchinson just did a talk with the Neu groups about some of that. I don't know if you ch checked it out, but talked about, I think it was something about, I didn't, I just saw the Twitter feed. So that's how I nose in on those things without maybe registering, but um, is they sh he showed something about sadness and how it related to like changes in the person's immune profile, like, you know, inflammatory profiles with, I think it was like interleukin seven levels or something like that. But we're starting to see how this story relates to physiology. And I think this whole mind body dualistic approach to humans that we've had in the past hasn't served us well. And because our, our stories are embodied in our biology and how our, our biology emerges for um, I always give patients the story of the haunted house or the beach. You know, if you're in, you're the same human, you get put in two different situations. Your, your physiology is going to be behaving a heck of a lot different heart rate, blood pressure, um, all those things um, in those two different contexts can be very different. And uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, those type of things, bringing depression into the room is just, again, data that we validate and that we, you know, Hey, it sounds like you're having a really tough time with what you, you know, you've been dealing with. I, understandably, it sounds like you've had a really challenging journey with this. Are you okay if we kind of talk about how that might impact, you know, our care and, and maybe some things we can do to, to help really, I, I want to treat the whole of your situation and the whole parts of what we know we can do to help you get better. And I think we have significant data that shows depression has pretty negative prognostic um, influences on how people are going to navigate a journey after an injury or a surgery or whatever it may be that, Hey, I'd like to see if we can, you know, and most folks, as far as positioning, I'm just, my interest is in being as thorough and as, and bringing out every possible avenue we can help you navigate towards whatever's important to you. So you're, if you're okay with, I'd like to see if we talk about your depression a little bit and, um, and how that might impact situations. And I haven't had too many folks that have flat. I mean, I have had some folks that aren't really interested in going there. They, and again, I'm a physical therapist, which I don't think always helps because I'm kind of cordoned off into the physical world where promise is the physical world I treat with is influenced by people's psychology and, and mm. we're all, you know, immunology and endocrinology and rheumatology and all those ologies that healthcare systems have, you know, categorized themselves and bucketed themselves away from. But like I said, I think we need to start looking at how these systems, complex systems all interrelate and start to put pieces together for patients instead of pulling them into a million different pieces. I used to work at the Mayo Clinic, an amazing healthcare. Uh, it's one of the world's leading research institutions and educational institutions. Um, but, you know, we get complex patients who would go through, like I had a patient who had like 75 encounters with the Mayo Clinic in like a 60 day period um, mm -hmm. with different specialists, all having different information and different things where nobody was trying to put the story together with the patients. And I think, you know, when we when we're not willing to bring in psychology and how it affects immunology and, and your endocrinology and all these different things, I think we miss a huge opportunity to help people get a better grasp on how the story they live in influences their biology. And I think 
um, you talk to Gillettas and Tinas, they talk about a story that really had a challenging, you know, impact on their journey. It's something it wasn't until that story started, the plot started changing and not physically, it was a lot of more, um, you know, some aha moments they had maybe more from a psychosocial perspective that moved them forward. So, um, yeah, I think you got to be willing to bring that information in the room as uncomfortable as it might make you as you first start talking about depression with patients and those type of topics. If we're going to best serve the people we're serving, I think we have to, it's our duty to talk about it. And again, stay in our scope. And, but I think as a podiatrist, if I was a podiatrist, I, you know, and somebody's depressed and not loading their ankle and, you know, sitting, you know, doing all the things that aren't going to move them, then I think that it's, you know, we need to at least be willing to have a discussion of where we can start dealing with that stuff to help them move forward. Hmm. I think that, the, I think that's the the thing that you, you sort of, you highlighted right, right at the end there, which is, you know, we can look at, at so much of, and I think it's incredibly important to look at all those things that 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 um, impact biology. You know, if you are depressed, there are things that are showing that that you will be different. And I and I actually really liked that that little example that you didn't highlight much, but you you sort of snuck in there. You know, the human body operates differently in a haunted house than it does the beach, and and there'll be actual physical changes. Um, but I guess that that sort of that that last little bit that you mentioned that you sort of snuck in there, and you sort of said. Well, actually, you know, if someone is depressed, they're not going to be doing the things that um, uh, that essentially going to get them towards a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that sort of a good way of as as a um, as someone who's dealing with the musculoskeletal side of things? Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of a good way of sort of looking at it is that um, you know, depression can come from you know their actual their situation and their their, their fact of being stuck. Um, it could come from outside influences, social and psychosocial um, sort of factors as well that they then bring into it. But would a good sort of way from a physical therapist, physical therapy perspective to look at it say, well, a lot of us is just about how we can influence their behavior, helping them move towards a more positive way of, of, of life, which, which sort of puts them back on that, that track that we've got on that, on that map. Is that sort of the, the way that we would, we would sort of capsulate that, that idea? Yeah, I think, um, like I said, we don't, I would have, bring up some questioning and just like, what might be some things that are influencing, like, hey, this has been hard on you, you know, sounds like it looks, you look like you're a little down, can you tell me a little bit about what are the things that are most concerning to you around what, what you're dealing with and see if you can find some things of just like what's going on in their story. And again, just start putting the pieces together of like, hey, you're dealing with, man, you might lose your job and you're, you're the primary, you know, financial support of your family. So there's a lot of concerns and just kind of how you paint the picture with the patient and try to put the things together of like, Hey, how that's going to, um, you know, pot, you know, those things put a lot of stress in the system. And again, remember what we talked about the, the haunted house versus the beach, that's going to probably move your physiology in a direction where, um, and I also bring up studies where I, there's one where they did a notch at the soft palate of a dental, a group of dental students. One group was on vacation break and the other uh, group was in the midst of finals time. And they looked at healing and uh, healing, mm-hmm obviously different when folks were under final stress and pressure versus vacation. So I'm trying to talk about how some of the, our story impacts our healing and some of the things. So um, yeah. I, and then trying to see if there's where you can get people to, you know, just validate, Hey, this has definitely been tough. And, you know, I can't imagine what you've been going through, but I think if we can get you to start moving and start doing the things that make you feel like you again, I think we can maybe start treating that. And obviously if it's significant, then we probably need to you know, have some, pathways to to refer like to to our psychology mental behavioral health colleagues to 
help that patient out. Yeah, so it's sort of highlighting, I think, that, that prognostically from the start, that's someone who's probably going to have a worse outcome. And that can be something that if you are validating, you're bringing up, you are highlighting to them that this is this is part of your unique presentation. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to tell you this is a six-week thing. We're going to highlight that, hey, you know, this is potentially, you know, quite a bit longer. We're here to support you through that. And um, you know, here are the positive things that we're going to try and do, but we're taking in all this information and, and trying to help sort of create that sort of map to say, you know, we've got this pathway, but it might be a bit more closed off. It might be harder to, to track. And a big part of that would just be from what you're saying, you know, bringing it up, making it information that the patient's aware of, because if the patient's aware of it, then that's that, that affects their processing. And then immediately you're in a, a different situation, it's sort of that old saying, you know, if you observe something, it's, you know, by observing something you actually changed it and by the same way as you know if they're observing more of what's going on that's going to change that outcome yeah i think and again it goes back to how our health healthcare systems have often been created where we've kind of and it took to understand the complexity of the human body we've kind of divided it into all these systems and buckets but it's not how humans work and it can become a very confusing thing but i think the more you can bring in dispositional things of how these systems correlate especially when we look at chronic overlapping pain conditions and other things where we're seeing multiple body systems being involved in these different things that could start also emerging to a localized foot sensitivity as well that comes in a podiatry office or a, um, you know, a chronic neck issue that enters a physio office. I mean, but I think the more we can have folks that understand this dispositionalist philosophy and how this stuff, all this data needs to be brought in the room, we can start piecing these stories better together for people so they can maybe consider that, hey, if I'm going to make this foot or back feel better, I might need to address my mental health along with this or, and really have somebody help me through some of the stuff that's got me down on this thing. Um, I've had a lot of patients where, where, you know, you know, major shifts in what was, you know, getting them down, maybe it was a personal relationship or, or, Hey, the, their, their job security was established where, Hey, I, I, I I'm not gonna lose my job. I'm, uh, you know, things are okay now. And then all of a sudden you see this, you know, the shift in how they're, they're moving. I think just that we owe it to our patients to, to, bring that data into the room to best see if we can help them kind of navigate it. And, that, and that's it, bringing that disposition in going, you're, you're disposed to a more negative outcome. Maybe yeah. we shouldn't beat ourselves up if you're not doing as well. Maybe we should be aware of that because potentially that's, that's where the, where the, not harm, but that's, that's where we can potentially go wrong is that with that expectation where we've got someone who is never going to do well, but we, we get, we gave them the, the idea that they should. Yeah. And that's where, you know, they become the difficult patient. And, I, you know, you talk to Gillette and Tina and their stories about where nobody brought their story into the room for a long time, yet their life is completely spiraling in a bad direction. And nobody brought that information to the room I should, or it took a long time for that to be brought in the room. And, and, and Gillette, I think, probably found it out herself on her own as she explored that um, some of her own studies and unique stuff that, um, you know, really helped her move forward. So, yeah, I think you know, bring that human experience and unique human experience that every patient brings to me. It's, it makes it fun because every interaction is different. It's not this black and white algorithmic way of operating in the clinic. Um, it makes clinical life a lot more enjoyable. A lot, you still can be more challenging, sometimes even more frustrating because you get to hear some things that are pretty challenging stories that frustrate you that patients have to go through. Um, and some patients that have just difficult situations that they're in that it's going to be hard for any clinical context to change it. Um, hmm despite best efforts. I think that's, I think that's a, a, a brilliant, brilliant point to, to end on that, that, yeah, you, this is not just about 
getting better outcomes or being a better clinician. It's also just having a, a, a better time, a better work life sort of uh, relationship as well. Cause you're not, um, you know, you can, by seeing people as, as people, um, you can have better relationships. You can understand things more nuanced rather than sort of just hitting against patients and going frustrated. Why aren't they getting better? I've done everything correct. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes some of that, those situations where historically we would be so frustrated and just like, you know, I've obviously pulled all of my hair already, but um, where you're just, you're like, I don't know what to do with this patient. And I, I, I'm okay sometimes where I just, Hey, I've given it my best effort. And you know, the, the context right now with everything that's going on in the patient's life, it just may not be in the, but I can definitely hopefully plant some seeds, hopefully get the patient to maybe circle back when things, when maybe things line up better for them to, move in a positive direction. But yeah, it, to me, having that genuine curiosity every day in the clinic to how can I tap into this person's unique existence and move them forward um, makes it fun. Uh, you know, it makes it enjoyable to go to work again and, and not be frustrated that the, I'm trying to ram everybody through this CPG and a specific pathway that some people just aren't there to form. It makes you be able to tailor your care so much more uniquely to the unique person in front of you. Um, it's, it's kind of revitalized my career for sure. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and, and chatting and, and um, bringing a lot of your thoughts and experience uh, to, to the cause, this sort of cause health project. And I think a lot of people are going to take a, a lot of really valuable points um, out of it in, in terms of how we think about this in the clinic. Um, before we go, though, if, if people want to hear more from you and, and hear more about um, your approach and, and your thoughts, um, where, where can people find you? Sure. Um, right now, uh, if you go to modernpaincare.com, that's our uh, continuing education company that Jared Hall and I run. There's also our Modern Pain podcast where Jared and I, um, you know, we'll talk clinical topics and different things. We've had, we've talked about a myriad of, of topics, some more kind of local um, specific mechanical treatment stuff, but also getting into philosophy. We've pretty much covered the gamut there. Um, if you, everybody, anybody who ever wants to reach out to me, mark at modernpaincare.com if you ever want to email um, I'm on Instagram, uh, not as much. I'm not a huge social media guy besides my trying attempts at free continued education by following and listening to smart people on social media. I don't interact a ton as much probably as I should, but uh, yeah, that would be the way to get to hold me. And I'm happy to, I love having these type of discussions. So I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks again for coming on. And uh, thanks everyone for, for listening. If you've made it uh, this far, which uh, Mark's made it very, very easy to 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 get to. Uh, I think he's a very easy and uh, person to listen to, and and someone who really helps make sense of things. You know, thank you for joining us, and hope you've gotten a lot out of it. And and um, if there's anything that particularly you want us to talk about, d- delve into to more in future series with future guests, please reach out um, to, to us, um, either through our social media, Podiatry Systems, through through Cause Health, uh, social media as well. They're also on on uh, on Twitter. Um, uh, or, or really, if, if you're part of our, our course and you're logged in, you can leave a comment and uh, we'll, we'll get straight to it. But thanks again for joining us.